Please turn to Psalm 18. Now today I will begin reading in verse 16 and all the way through verse 34. The Lord sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him. And I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. With a merciful, you show yourself merciful. With a blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With a purified, you show yourself pure. And with a crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is by you, for it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against the troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of brass. Afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Struck down, and yet not destroyed. Paul describes his apostolic life experience. A man of contrasts. Weak and strong, vulnerable yet indestructible a man of contrasts, an elusive figure, almost like the Scarlet Pimpernel. They seek him here, they seek him there, the Frenchies seek him everywhere. Is he in heaven or is he in hell, that damned, elusive elusive Scarlet Pimpernel? Oh, Paul did never wear costumes like the Scarlet Pimpernel. And Jesus Christ did not wear disguises. And if you sought Jesus, it would not be hard to find him. And yet Jesus was no less elusive. In fact, arguably, even more so. Jesus is the Lord of life and tasted death for everyone. He is the quintessential conundrum You couldn't hang a sign on him. He was gentle and merciful, especially to people that nobody paid attention to. 
He fed crowds. He healed sick. But he wouldn't fit into the mold of a pacifist, whipping into shape corrupt temple worshipers in holy rage. Just when you thought that you had figured Jesus out, out, he slipped through people's expectations effortlessly like a ghost, never looking back. His disciples who loved him saw their world turned upside down every day as they watched Jesus' ministry unfolding. Time-honored boundaries of first-century Palestinian Jews that had shaped the lives of the people. Boundaries of male and female, young and old, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, were at one point or another suspended or even set aside. And as his fame grew, so did his elusiveness. Jesus never fell for people's attestations or their avowals or their flatteries, for he knew what was in man. And the end of his career, as you all know, it was the height of hair-raising extremes. Hailed by crowds as the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Yet tried and condemned as heretic and crucified within only days. What a person. What a life of contrasts. And yet, brothers and sisters... Jesus has bequeathed this experience to some extent. He has, he has bequeathed this experience to all his followers, not only to apostles like Paul, but to us as well. As Paul explains in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10, where he says, we are always, we are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So there you have it, the starkest contrast that exists in our own experience, the contrast, the antithesis of death and life, both together at work at once in the life of a believer. Oh, what a contrast. What a conundrum. And it's true. Psalm 18, and in particular the heart of the psalm that we read this morning, verses 16 through 34. Psalm 18 shows that the pattern of Christ, a man of contrasts, has always been on his people, even in the Old Testament, and David is a case in point. Yeah, this core of 18, the verses that we read, 16 through 34, is a portrait of a man after God's own heart and a person of contrasting characteristics. He's weak. He's outgunned and overpowered. 16 through 19, that's the block of text that we studied in detail last week. David is weak. 
but he is also strong in the Lord like a warrior, verses 31 through 34. Then again, David claims righteousness and blamelessness. And yet, he walks humbly. He walks humbly with God. Verses 20 through 25, or 25 through 30. He's a man of contrasts. And these contrasts, they attract our attention today. These contrasts are the ones that we need to uh, discuss. Now, we spoke of David being defeated at length last week. But notice the last line of 19, how he says, after claiming to be defeated, claiming to be weak, he rescued me because he delighted in me. And here's the reason why God saved David, at least as far as David is concerned. He believes God saved him because he delighted in me. And this statement, this claim, is a hook. This phrase is a hook on which the following verses hang, namely the portrait of a man of God's own heart. The following verses tell you what God saw in David to delight in him and the qualities that the core of Psalm 18 lists are ultimately qualities that God put in David. God put them there. But they are also qualities that want to be found in everyone who follows Jesus Christ. Because David, even though he did not see it the way that we do, David was a follower of Jesus. And the qualities that he possessed were qualities that were found in Jesus and Paul was a follower of Jesus. And the qualities that he displayed as a man of contrasts were the qualities that were on display in the person of Jesus Christ. And we are his followers. And Jesus is our pattern. So let's look at these contrasts, these features, these characteristics. First, David is weak, but also strong. Jürgen Leinemann wrote a book entitled High Altitude Euphoria, describing how power changes people. Power makes us walk a thin red line. And there is a drop. There is a deep abyss on either side. Anyone who walks this grade, this thin red line, sooner or later will fall, must fall. Leinemann speaks of high-altitude euphoria as intoxication. You reach a state of phenomenal euphoria as you approach the summit of Mount Everest. Every climber can testify to this. Euphoria takes possession of you like intoxication. David here is weak and defeated, but he has a source of strength like no other. 
It's not in himself. Nor is he intoxicated because he knows that strength, any form of strength, is borrowed from God. Even as Jesus told Pontius Pilate, you would have no power except it is given to you from heaven. And that's what David confesses in verses 31 through 34, as he says, God equips me with strength. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of brass. And these are vivid battle imageries, military imageries, but you ought not to think merely of physical strength and combat skills, of which David had a lot. You must also think of strength of heart. Because even if you go to physical warfare, you have to have a heart for it. Not everyone does. And David understood that strength of heart is in the Lord, teaching us to trust Him in any circumstances, whether you have political peace or warfare. Trust God in spiritual warfare, which is always relevant, always on. And a very telling picture of this is seen in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6. At this point in David's life, he is compromised. David is compromised. He courts the Philistine king Achish, who wages war against Saul and against Israel, David's own people. Fear of Saul, who has persecuted David for many years now, and fear of loss of life have finally brought David to this place and to this king and to this time. He's caught, caught on the horns of a dilemma that is spinning out of control. Will he actually go out with the Philistine king to fight Israel on the battlefield as David offers his services to the king? And how long will he be able to make the king believe that he is his trusted servant because David already has the promise of God that he will be the next king of Israel? How long? David is walking a very narrow grade. David is walking the thin red line because at that point in his life, he was relying not on the Lord. He was relying on his own resources, his own wisdom to figure out his way. And therefore also, he was relying on his own strength. But by God's providence, because God always watches over his children, by God's providence, the Philistine officers, unlike the king, they didn't trust David. And so they said to the king, no, he's going to put the knife in your back when the battle starts. And their word prevails. So David is sent back home. That was God protecting David from something horrendous. 
He's sent back home only to find that his current base of operations, the town of Ziklag, has been raided. And their wives and kids carried away captive. And now you can hear the 600 freelancers of David, and they are dangerous men. They take lives. You can hear the 600 freelancers cursing and blaming and talking rebellion against David. He is isolated. And yet he knows that even now, despite his own poor judgment that put him into this predicament, you can trust God even now. And I ask you, brother and sister, if you can't trust God in a time like this, even after you fouled up, if you can't trust God when you need Him most, then why trust Him at all if God is not good enough to trust in or to be trusted in in a time like this? And so we read in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6, David was greatly distressed because they spoke of stoning him because they bore bitterness in their souls. Yet David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David did not allow himself to panic but he sought strength in connecting with God. And this is what you hear in Psalm 18, verse 6. In my distress, I was greatly distressed. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. Lord, now is a good time to show up. I need you. And in the very cry for help, God can give you strength. God can inhabit even our cries for help. And when Jesus had to drink his cup and he began to be scared out of his wits and exceedingly sorrowful even unto death, he turned to his father he wasn't reaching out to some great void or to some principle or a timeless truth. He held hands with his father. He was overwhelmed. He turned to the father in his life's most critical hour because he was weak. And he was overwhelmed, overwhelmed by the burden and the filth of our guilt. And by the power of God's wrath, he was weak, but he found strength in the Lord. And this is what we must learn. This is what we must practice in this life of faith. Hold hands with the Father. Apply corrective prayer, corrective prayer when thoughts molest you, when you are tempted, when you think bad thoughts. Drag them out into the light of God's presence. Hold them up for everyone to see. Speak of them, describe them, 
Name them. Strengthen yourself in the Lord. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And if God does send you into spiritual battle, and he does, then he will and he must provide strength for you to fight the good fight. Have you been living on your own resources or in your own strength like David in the town of Ziglag when he served King Achish? Maybe today, maybe this week, maybe this month, this year, or these years. Maybe you have been ignoring the words of your good shepherd. Even now, he will restore you like cities of Europe, bombed to dust and ashes yet rebuilt so that you wouldn't even know that there was a world war that ravaged the continent. This is his promise. Return to me and I will return to you. Zechariah chapter 1. Because God has made his son strong to save and to restore us and to bring us back home. God's grace always meets you where you are. God's grace meets you just where you are. Strengthen yourself in the Lord. So, there is weakness and strength side by side in David, in Paul, and in us. Because we follow the pattern of Jesus Christ, strength and weakness being in him. And now the second contrast of this core of the psalm, the contrast of righteousness and humility. Uh, I think that we all know that the two can get into each other's way in the life of a sinner. For example, I do something that is good and right, to do, but for the wrong reason. I do it to be seen of people, to be praised of people, and what happens if I don't get it? <laughs> I'm upset. You can also see the contrast between righteousness and humility in the famous parable of Jesus in Luke 18, the Pharisee and the taxman. The Pharisee worships his righteousness. And he has no humility. As a matter of fact, he exalts himself. And he suffers from his own brand of high-altitude euphoria. And he's very sincere. You, can, you, you bet he was sincere, like, like the Apostle Paul. He was sincerely persecuting Christians. And then you have the tax man, and he humbles himself having no righteousness, and he knows it. And yet David says, this is verses 20 through 24, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, <laughs> according to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me. <gasps> is David a Pharisee? No, this is not the prayer of a Pharisee who is sincere about himself, but sincerely wrong. David knew he was keenly aware of his own sins and his need for forgiveness every day. 
And David knew, as he says in verse 32, that it was the Lord, the Lord who made my way blameless. God made my way blameless. The credit goes to God. However, <laughs> you and I, we cannot reduce this language that you find here to a clever way of speaking of God working in David, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, this is theologically correct. This is theologically sound. God works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. And if he doesn't work, neither will you. But if this is how you read this section of the psalm, you are gagging the text because the emphasis is not on God working. The emphasis here is on David working out his own salvation with fear and trembling. And this, my friends, this is not a metaphor. It's reality. Working out your own salvation with fear and trembling is not a metaphor. It's reality. And so we must pay all the more heed. Now, I offer you two ways to broach the sweeping claims of 20 through 24, claims of righteousness and blamelessness that almost sound too good to be true. And one is to understand that David here speaks of the direction that the life of a child of God always takes. That he has a heart that beats for God. And in this sense, the broad, sweeping claims of this section of the psalm are an expose or an exposition of David's initial confession in verse 1. I love you, Lord. I love you, O Lord. Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, because we are children of God, God has sent the Spirit of His Son, that's the Spirit of Jesus Christ, into our hearts, Crying, Abba, Father. So we have a heart beating for God, crying for God. And the word that David uses in verse 1, I love you, O Lord, is very unconventional. It is usually employed of God's mercy or God's confession, as for example in Psalm 51, verse 1, where David pleads with God, have mercy on me, have compassion on me. This is a word that refers to your entrails. This is a word that refers to your internal organs like the liver or the kidney or the heart. It refers to the guts of a person. So when David says, I love you, O Lord, he is saying, my guts are turned to you. 
This is a deep conviction at the core of his being. Making God his first love. And that's how the matter is settled. You can say anything about me. You can do anything to me. I love you, O Lord. The matter is settled. I have settled it in my heart. And he may be conflicted, as we all are. But his heart is fixed on God. His basic orientation is not to want to walk the thin red line and to be intoxicated with high-altitude euphoria, but to hunger and to thirst for God and to be filled, of course, to be filled. And is that how you feel, brother and sister? Is this who you are? Is this how you feel about God? And are you the kind who says, I love you, O Lord. I love you, O Lord. So, the sweeping claims of 20 through 24 are a way of speaking of the basic disposition of a person, the direction that a life takes. <coughs> Second, <laughs> there must be good works, works of righteousness in my life and in your life so that the presence of Christ is seen. There must be good works to reflect the presence of Christ. If Christ dwells in my heart by faith, then his presence must bubble to the surface somehow. Even amidst conflicting signals, there must be something that tells you that man, that woman is the real deal. So when all is said and done, that person belongs to Jesus Christ. Yes. So there must be good works and as Ephesians chapter 1 says, God saved us for good works so that we might walk in them. James 2.22 says of Abram that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed or rather was made perfect by works. And in this particular passage of James 2, James speaks of the sacrifice of Isaac, Abram's son. What a command of God. Go and sacrifice Isaac, your only son, your beloved son. Kill him. Now, this is not a timeless truth, and Abram understood that this is not ethical either. But he also knew that his faith was tested. For at that point in Abram's life, his faith that God once counted for his righteousness, merely by taking God at his word of promise and believing him, that was enough. At this point in his life, that faith showed fruit that made Abram not only to hear and to believe, but to actually obey God's word without wavering, and in particular in a command like this that didn't make any sense, that goes against the character of God. 
And it was all of one fabric, faith and works. Faith with works, not faith without works. In the end, we do what we believe. In the end, we end up being doers and not mere hearers of God's word. And that was what this test came to. It is not as Heinrich Heine once spoke of hypocrites and saying, they drank wine in secret and preached water in public. And good works, works of righteousness, they don't get done. They don't get done by good intentions. Many people, all people have them, but by themselves, good intentions are like idols. They do nothing. They don't have a mouth to speak with, they don't have feet to walk on, and they don't have hands to work with. One lady made the acquaintance and visited a single mom whose son was suffering from an exceedingly rare disease. It's called ALD. And believe you me, that actual name for which this shorthand stands is too long and too difficult for me to pronounce. I don't think I could pull it off. But ALD is the same disease that was also featured in the 1990s uh, movie Lorenzo's Oil, a neurological disorder, an evil disease that is fatal within two years of the initial symptoms, including Falling, fainting, seizures, memory loss. Mom worked day and night to provide some, not all, but some of the care that her son needed. And get this, her three-year-old daughter suffered from the same disorder. What are the odds? What a tragedy. And you thought that you have problems? So here's the picture. In a couple of years, her son, who was lying on the couch with a water container from which he could only drink through a straw, he would be moved off the couch and into the grave in order to be replaced by her daughter and to go the same way after another couple of years. And when the lady who came for a visit left the apartment, she sat in her car, sobbing, filled with rage and sadness at the same time, sobbing for 30 minutes. And then she took a piece of paper and began to write down things that she wanted to do to help. She had good intentions. However, in the next week, she did nothing. And then the piece of paper landed on the back seat of her car. And eventually it was buried under old newspapers and coupons for grocery stores. The lady was a very unclean ba uh, lady. And only after a year, when she finally cleaned out her car, she found this piece of paper. And she read it and she was shocked. What happened? Good intentions are like idols. 
If not acted on, they do nothing. Righteousness, good works, is a fruit of Christ's Spirit. It wants to be seen. It must be seen. And here's now my last point. Righteousness is also balanced by humility. Righteousness is balanced by humility. Verses 25 through 30, David says, You save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. And he goes on to speak of how God is his refuge, how he alone is his shield. People who claim righteousness often are arrogant and proud. People who claim righteousness often boast, and they are like people who are intoxicated. They suffer from high-altitude euphoria. And they therefore also tend to look down on others. They find fault with others. They are looking for fault, and they will find it. It is the sin of the Pharisee. David doesn't do this. He knows that he owes all to God who lights his lamp. And so boasting is excluded. If David ever boasted, he boasted in the Lord. And who makes you to differ? Hmm? What do you have that you didn't receive? If then you received it, why are you boasting as though you didn't receive it? We are all a bunch of hypocrites in this way. Know your place, brother and sister. In these verses, 25 through 30, David uses wisdom language. He speaks of wisdom. And, and it reads like Proverbs, doesn't it? Wisdom, the fear of the Lord, humility, these are all synonyms. They refer to one and the same thing. Know your place. The fear of the Lord or humility teaches you that God is in heaven and you on earth. And as for man, any one of us, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind passes over it and it's gone. And the place where it was knows it no more. And if ever there was a man with a humble heart, it was Jesus. This is another great conundrum about this person. He's the Lord from heaven, you know. He's the Lord of glory. And he has a humble heart. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. So what do you learn when you come to Jesus? What do you learn from him? You learn meekness and humility, the very qualities that he claims for himself, among other things. Learn from Jesus, who, being found in human form, humbled himself. being obedient even to the point of death, death on the cross. Learn from Jesus. Have Christ's mind because the Father loves 
He is delighted to see his son formed in us. Humility, I believe, is the most difficult lesson to learn from Jesus. Humility, I believe, is the most underrated quality that we see in Jesus. Humility, I believe, is the one quality that we see in Jesus so brilliantly that is often mistaken for weakness. And humility isn't loud. It's not glamorous. But humility always has God's attention. And sometimes, even ours. Bishop Desmond Tutu was the first black bishop of the Anglican Church of South Africa. And Tutu remembers that in the days of apartheid in South Africa, black people had to step aside on a sideway when facing white people. They had to step aside respectfully, and this was anchored in law. Not so much different from the segregation that we had in our own country, and not even long ago. One day, I was a little boy, says Desmond Tutu. I was walking with my mom, and there was a tall white man in a black suit coming in our direction. But before we could step aside, he stepped aside and beckoned with his hands for us to pass him. And I asked mom, why did this man do that? And she said, he's an Anglican priest. He's a man of God. That day, I decided that I wanted to become an Anglican priest. And more than that, to become a man of God. Humility is the perfect complement to righteousness keeping everything in perfect balance. Humility is the perfect complement to righteousness. So, brothers and sisters, here is the portrait of a man after God's own heart. You looked at it today. A man of contrasts, safe from all his enemies because God delights in him. He's weak, but strong. He keeps righteousness, but he walks humbly. And if you aspire to this life that was on perfect display in Jesus Christ, if you aspire to this life, a life of contrast, you don't need to be perfect. You don't need to be strong. You do not even need to be righteous. You only need to follow Jesus Christ and he will supply you with all that you need for it. And your reward is with him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this portrait of the man after God's own heart. We see David. We see, to some extent, us. We see Jesus who for a little while was made lower than the angels, 
crowned with glory and honor. The Lord of life who tasted death for everyone and who for the joy that was set before him despised the suffering and endured the shame of the cross. Who are we, O Lord, to refuse his yoke? Since it is gentle, since he helps us, since he is with us, so let us learn from him and find rest for our souls in following Jesus. Blessed be his name. Amen.